Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week we ask how do politicians view economists and what's the proper place of technocracy? Hello, my name is Alan Runnick and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. It's the economy, stupid. That famously was one of the organising principles of Bill Clinton's campaign for the US presidency in 1992. 30 years on, amidst a cost of living crisis, economic policy decisions still often dominate politics. Some of the debates about economic policy relate to questions of fundamental values. How much weight should we place, for example, on the size of the cake or on its distribution? But other debates focus on questions of fact. Would lowering taxes today fuel inflation? Did austerity a decade ago protect the public finances by bringing spending closer to tax receipts or harm them by shrinking the economy and thereby diminishing the tax take? So if fundamental questions at the heart of politics are at least in principle answerable by experts, that raises the question of what the relationship between elected politicians and expert economists should be. The Bank of England was given independent control over monetary policy 25 years ago. So should other areas of economic policy get similar technocratic treatment? Or does political control matter? Well, a forthcoming book by Dr. Anna Killick, a research fellow here in the UCL Department of Political Science, sheds new light on these questions. The book is entitled Politicians and Economic Experts, The Limits of Technocracy. It examines the opinions of politicians in five Western democracies towards the economy, economic expertise and technocratic policymaking. And as the title suggests, it concludes that there are dangers in taking technocracy too far. Anna, welcome back to UCL Uncovering Politics. And let's begin by discussing the focus of the book. You examine what politicians think about the economy and about economic experts. Why did you think that research on this topic was needed? Well, thank you, Alan, and it's great to be back here. We started with Lucy Barnes' being conscious, Lucy Barnes, UCL politics department, being conscious that ever since the 2008 financial crisis, economic problems have been getting more severe, more complex. If you just think of, you know, the years of stagnant wage growth we had, the rise of economic nationalism in the shape of Trump and, and some would argue Brexit, and that's before we even got on to the unprecedented pandemic pressures. And underpinning all of that, the gradually louder rumble from climate change, which increasingly people were conscious was going to affect our economics one way or another. And I think even erstwhile climate deniers at the absolute minimum, might look at something like, should we change insurance policy to avoid flooding? And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who believe that climate change is an existential threat and we need to completely change the way that we look at economics and uh, and fundamentally alter both our economic values, as you were talking about, and our mindset. And so her focus was to look at voters and voters 
economic ideas across five wealthy democracies, UK, France, Germany, Denmark, and USA. But we thought that if you're going to look at voters and how voters are thinking about the economy, then you do also need to look at politicians alongside voters, partly because they're communicating their economic ideas or trying to communicate their economic ideas to the voters. And, you know, there seem to be these twin pressures on politicians where on the one hand, you might have a whole raft of economic experts telling the politicians to do policy X or Y. But on the other hand, you've got politicians who are looking at their voters and need to get re-elected. So that was the genesis for the research. And what was quite striking is how neglected research into politicians' general economic ideas has been. Actually, there's been more qualitative research into economists than politicians themselves. So, you know, for that reason, we think it's really important. And, you know, we're delighted to be able to contribute to the debate at this particular point in our economic time, and also giving what we think are quite revealing and sometimes surprising insights into the nearly 100 economists, uh, politicians, sorry, that we interviewed. So you mentioned Lucy Barnes there. And of course, it's important to mention that your work is part of her broader project, exploring attitudes to the economy, uh, looking at that from a variety of different perspectives. And it's striking that within that, you point out that very little work has been done looking at the attitudes of politicians, despite the fact that they're obviously right at the centre of the process. Do you have a sense of why that is? Why people have not studied the views of politicians terribly much? Well, I think they've studied the public pronouncements and they've sometimes, researchers have sometimes tried to read quite a lot into what what politicians are saying in speeches or manifestos or, or other public documents. But it's quite hard to get politicians to talk in private about something as abstract as their economic ideas. For, For example, if they have been intimately involved in a particular policy, a rise in VAT, a change in council tax or whatever it is, then they might want to talk to a researcher on the record to make sure that their perception of what happened gets out there. But if it's a question of talking to a researcher about where their economic ideas come from, and we actually thought it was important that the research was confidential, so they weren't going to get publicity or or kudos from doing it, then that's a big ask. I mean, it's a big ask in a practical sense because these are unbelievably busy people. And in fact, one of the things we did in the book was to interview current politicians, but also some very recently, you know, politicians who who'd lost the last election and, and therefore did perhaps have a little bit more time. And I hope that more of it will happen because I think... It's important that politicians explain where they were coming from and and, and what shaped them and what drove them into politics, which, contrary to what a lot of voters think, is a very, very hard, in many ways, path to take. And 
I'm going to hold up my hands at this stage in our discussion by saying I did all these interviews 2020 to 2021 during the pandemic and actually it was quite a life-affirming experience and I think we should be attempting to do private interviews with politicians more often. And did you find it it was easier in a sense to do them during the pandemic. And I, I was also doing a project that involved quite a lot of interviews during the pandemic period. And I found people who normally would just be so busy flying around the world doing a thousand things. I mean, particularly former politicians, I guess, who, you know, have very busy lives on the circuit generally. Suddenly they were available and didn't have anything else to do. And so they were happy to chat for hours in some cases. I think we did find some of that um, and also a bit more discipline perhaps about the diary because the diary on Zoom, strangely, the Zoom calls seem to be interrupted less than they would have been if you'd been sitting in an office with them and you might have had phone calls from journalists coming in or secretaries, you know, banging on the office door and demanding things, you know, in the middle of the interview. So Mm. in some ways, yeah, it was. Yeah, I also think that you, you, I'm quite converted to how you can learn a lot in an online interview and it's not necessarily less revealing than face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can, one of the things that I find is that you can, you can really intensely watch people's body language because you're not kind of freaking them out by staring at them. <laughs> Whereas if you're doing a face-to-face interview, you know, you have to be a little bit careful of that. And sometimes, you know, people often say that, well, you get so much more body language face to face than you do on, on Zoom. But actually, it's not clear to me that that's the case, because you mm. can't, you can't mm. watch the body language face to face in the same way as you can on Zoom. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting, because obviously, this podcast is listened to by lots of researchers and people who want to be researchers in the future. So, you know, this kind of insight into the research process is, is really fascinating, I think. And, um, so, I mean, that's lessons about doing interviews in the pandemic context, in the lockdown context. You said that it's it's hard to access these politicians because they're such busy people, but it's also important for us as researchers to try to do so. Yeah. Do, do, you, have any, do you have any tips for researchers as to how do we actually get access? How do we persuade these people to speak with us? Well, for every hour interview I probably did spend three or four hours maybe that's an exaggeration two to three hours emailing having to email a second or third time phoning up trying to find the researcher and get that personal contact through through the researcher or secretary in order to persuade uh, to persuade them and it is time consuming it's worth Mm. it but Mm. anyone who's doing it's going to have to steal themselves for 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 a bit of a hard sell on the phone and persistence yeah i agree with that um the, the time investment should not be underestimated and so we've said a little bit about what the research actually was so, so you did interviews with very nearly 100 politicians i think it was 99 wasn't it yeah frustratingly 99 <laughs> and eight, eight, 85 of them were elected politicians 14 were advisors they were from these five countries, France, Germany, Denmark, UK and USA. And we aim to get a politicians from 
across all the parties in each country. Now, we're not claiming for a second that it was highly representative of the political parties in the, in, in the country. And, and one of the things that I say in the book is that we had some excellent interviews with former members of the AFD, Alternative Deutschland in Germany, and, uh, and a couple of excellent far-right politician interviewees in Denmark, and actually also excellent interviewees from UKIP in Britain. But for example, very, very hard to get anyone from Rassemblement National, which is what used to be called the Front National in France. And, you know, given how many votes they get, that that was disappointing. So I would say that the book was skewed towards politicians, including in America, for example, the Republicans we talked to tended to be more critical of Trump than supportive of Trump. You know, it, 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 it's slightly skewed towards the centre, but it's it still, there's a lot of variety in there. And I think we covered a broad range. Mm. It's interesting. It, I mean, it raises a curious methodological question, doesn't it? Because your research is exploring politicians' attitudes towards experts. But of course, their attitude to experts is going to shape whether they're willing to speak with you as, as an expert engaging in a research project. And I mean, I think it's quite often the case that researchers find that it's harder to engage with people on the radical right, the far right, the populist right, however we describe it, because they do tend to have quite a sceptical attitude towards experts and the idea of researchers who can analyze things in depth and come up with an answer that is somehow better than the answer that is is simply out there. So I guess it does raise interesting methodological questions for this kind of work. And one of the things you're absolutely right that is really interesting is across politicians as a whole, from all five of those countries, actually, the proportion who have economics degrees, who've been formally trained in economics, is low. You know, about 20, 30 years ago, people were saying economists are spreading their influence. And one of the ways that economists are doing that is that more and more people who've done economics at university are, are going to go into politics. And actually... That's not the case. Lawyers, on the whole, still tend to massively dominate in all five of those countries. And yet, because we, we did actually make the decision to seek out politicians who were interested in economic policy, in other words, they had served as a finance minister or a budget minister or on one of the economic committees, because we just thought that we'd get richer data from them, we found that about a third of the people who responded to us had an economics degree of some kind. And so what's quite surprising is how negative they were about the role of economists in politics. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, we might have expected them to be more positive because they'd had these economic degrees, but that wasn't the case. Fascinating. So let's get on to the research results there, which you were starting to hint at. You were exploring this question of how politicians think about economic experts. What did you find? Well, I think the first thing that we found in general, there were some national differences, is that, and you might expect this, in some ways it's common sense, they say that economic experts aren't the same as other experts. So a common phrase is economics is not astrophysics. It's not a hard science. It's a soft science. And 
economists are divided. Therefore, the politicians would say that while they might seek out some advice from economic experts, they would either have done a bit of research beforehand into the kind of leanings they thought that economists had. And this extended in the case of America to politicians actually talking to us about Republican economists. You know, and sometimes this was economists who were working in the House of Congress who were servicing a committee, but sometimes this was actually economists based in universities who they saw as having some kind of allegiance to the Republican Party. And and then the same on the other side, you know, liberal economists, you know, in that American political sense, Democrat economists. So I think that's the first point. And really interestingly, some politicians might say that the plurality of economists, the fact that economists don't agree on a core of science ideas the way that physicists do or medical experts in the pandemic tended to do could be a positive. So, for example, there was this really interesting phenomenon that French politicians seem to be much more accepting of what they saw as the plurality of economists and saying, nevertheless, I still think they have value. Nevertheless, you know, I do like to consult a range or I have invited them into the committee to, to, to give a view on, on this issue or, or that issue. But for politicians in some of the other countries, it was a little bit of a negative that economists were seen as so divided. And the second point that I think came through was that they are critical that economists are still quite abstracted from real life. And one of them said, you know, that, that they, they have models, but the reality is not in the models and I'm dealing with the reality. And some of them who'd had economics degrees would say, you know, I studied economics myself, but the kind of economics I'm doing as a politician is not what I studied at university, and I haven't necessarily found what I studied at university that important in my life as, as a political economic policymaker. So, you know, there were, there, there were criticisms, there was some praise, for example, for behavioural economics and a feeling that maybe that should go further, but there were general criticisms that the discipline as a whole is, is quite a technical one and there's still too much abstraction. And that, of course, chimes very strongly with what we were discussing with Mark Steers on this epi- on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago. And he was picking up exactly that same concern that economists and other social scientists across a range of disciplines are often perceived by policymakers as dealing with very abstract questions. And as you say, with abstracted versions of reality in a way that perhaps isn't helpful for them. So what implications do those two findings have for how politicians actually approach policymaking and the role of experts in policymaking? Well, the, the questions we were asking them is, is, first of all, we were asking them where their economic ideas come from and, and how far they'd been influenced by economists. So, you know, some of them might have read a couple of economists in their youth and said, oh, I was very influenced by Milton Friedman, for example. Some of them really didn't mention any economists at all. 
So their economic ideas did seem to have been very much shaped by their political values. You know, either they were predisposed to think distributive justice was important. And, and then if they needed to seek out a bit of economic backing, you know, it would be very much in order to pursue that value path. Or they would talk about the need to look at you know, very applied economic ideas, and they were keen that things should have been tested. And this was a bit of a theme, for example, among British conservatives in particular, that they were much more interested in practical, what they call practical and applied, and and, and seemed to be more dismissive of uh, the value of any kind of theoretical economic thinking. And I think the implication of this is In the past, the people who said we should be using more economic experts were often on the right, Mm -hmm. because from the 1970s onwards, most economists in the mainstream were identified as being pro-market. And there's this whole idea that in the neoliberal era, starting in the 1970s, pro-market economists were getting more influence over people like Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. but. At the current time, I think there's some evidence, which I talk about in the book, for more progressive or left support for economic experts. And this is partly because people are so worried about climate change. So there's a feeling that it may be that experts will be needed to make the hard decisions on or appealed to if hard decisions need to be made on something like a fuel levy or climate change related tax. But I had a sort of two pronged answer to that, which from the politician's perspective, which is that, that first of all, I think there is a problem with politicians relying more as we go forward on economic experts, precisely because of how divided they are. So they might be able to point to the, the hard scientists on the International Panel for Climate Change but they're not going to be able to arrive at a settled consensus on which economists to consult when it comes to climate change. And then I think the second concern, which was quite nuanced from the politicians, but did come across from both left and right, is that there is a worry that there will be a voter backlash if they rely too much on economic experts and a kind of undermining of democracy. And what's that worry based on? Well, it's really interesting because there's a whole political science literature on how in the 1970s onwards, as you say in your introduction, when politicians did things like gave independence to central banks and did give up some of their policymaking power to economic agencies, economists in some cases... There are some political science scholars, such as, for example, Burnham, for example, the great scholar on depoliticisation, who say that that then is one of the reasons that voters felt so disenfranchised and shut out from politics, that they turned to populism or stopped being engaged in politics. And it's quite hard. I mean, we did quite bottom-up interviews And the politicians didn't want to criticise 
very directly voters, if you like. They had a view of voters that voters were very self-interested, but they didn't want to criticise them for things like ignorance about economic issues. They wanted to be quite respectful to voters, which was an interesting finding in itself. And I think it's something to do with the job description that a politician may need and a way of thinking they may need, need to imbibe. But I sense that they were uneasy, that all those years of maybe not talking very directly to voters about economics and and saying, well, the Bank of England's doing this and, you know, this privatised agency is, is doing that now, you know, had been unsatisfactory because voters still did expect politicians to have some power over the economy. So, What we've kind of had, which is where I'm getting to the real crux of the book, and what I think is most important about it, is we've had politicians ducking out of consistent communication with voters about the economy for perhaps 20 odd years. And they have to start doing it better now, because I think even they are aware of the dangers of of doing something like giving over control of economic policy on climate change to to a panel of experts because of how that might then lead to a a further backlash in the future. Great. So there's lots of fascinating, really important stuff in that answer. So let me just uh, cycle back a little bit. And on the subject of technocracy, so if I understand correctly, you found two arguments among the politicians as to why technocracy may be problematic when it comes to economic policy, most aspects of economic policy. So one is just the economists don't agree with each other. So someone has the job of kind of choosing among these economists, if you like, and that has to be a process that is not done by the technocrats themselves. Secondly, there's this concern that overly technocratic politics is disliked by voters and perhaps more profoundly feeds the disconnect between voters and the political class. And given that politicians ultimately have to be the people who are trusted to make the decisions, if you're feeding that disconnect, then you're feeding a fundamental challenge to our democratic system that is coming from populism. And that has to be countered Mm. if, if our democracies are going to succeed in the long run. That's exactly right. And I think that the thing about communicating with voters about economic issues is that only politicians are really the only people who can do it. And this is what politicians kind of know from our interviews. Um, the media can't can't really be relied upon to do it. I mean, there are a lot of people who think the media could do a better job, but I think politicians are not going to uh, depend on that. Some of them said that they wanted schools to do a better job. But as somebody who has taught in schools a lot myself, I I think even that was a bit half-hearted because, you know, how would politicians agree on what the school curriculum on economic literacy should be? And anyway, would people listen at, at the school level, at the school age? You know, it's not usually till adulthood that these things hit you. And Politicians were pretty dismissive about the capacity of economists themselves to communicate with voters because they, you know, they they would see them as being too abstract, and they think they are the great communicators. You know, they spend all the time on campaigns, so they think they are the great communicators. And what was really interesting was that 
There was one a group of politicians who consisted of some free trade, uh, free trade Republican politicians, but also, you know, a Danish far right politician, some of the French left politicians, some of the British Greens. You know, it was a it was a disparate group who really had been passionate about trying to get better at communicating. And I, I did give two examples in the book that were both from Republicans, one who passionately supported the Trump tax cuts. But what he did was he went out to factories and gathered factory workers in their lunch hour and did a really simple question and answer where he said to them what he thought was good about the Trump Trump tax cuts. I mean, he put effort into it, whether you agree with what his points were or not. And similarly, a free trade Republican who would use examples from local factories and the effects that import duties would have and, and then potential for job losses. Again, putting a lot of thought into bringing props into the town hall meeting or whatever it was. So there's this small group that are already doing it, but they need to be extended. And there needs to be a kind of blueprint for politicians from all parties on talking to the public, which involves being clearer and trying to strike that balance between On the one hand, starting where the member of the public is, you know, with their local factory, but on the other hand, not dumbing it down so much that you then get five years down the road a kind of populist backlash because nobody has really been explaining any of this stuff properly. So we're going to have to wrap up, but just to dig a little further into that blueprint for how the politicians can communicate effectively. And it sounds like what you're suggesting there is a lot of kind of hard work on the ground, engaging directly with people in factories, in in workplaces, in, in their constituencies, not just doing it through the media, that actually this requires a lot of more local, more direct forms of communication with people, which again actually fits very much into what Mark Stewart was arguing two weeks ago on this podcast. Absolutely. And, and I think that you know, it's also the time for it to happen, because whereas maybe five years ago, politicians could have hidden behind cultural policies, I think the economic pressures, particularly the cost of living, actually, are so great, that it's going to be harder and harder for them to to do that. Mm. So interesting. Thank you so much, Anna. It's been really great talking about this book. So the book that we've been discussing is by Anna Killick, and it is called Politicians and Economic Experts, The Limits of Technocracy. It will be published by Agenda Publishing in the autumn. Next week, we're looking at the politics of disability in the workplace with Drs. Sarah Bajaya Kumar and Colin Provost. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched by Conor Kelly and produced by James Cleaver. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.